Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D here again today, and we're beginning a new two-part project because, you know, as we're in quarantine, I think it's making me a little bit more long-winded than usual, perhaps. Um, I'm finding now that uh, I'm splitting all of the shorts into multiple-part shows, which, you know, you can argue is kind of good or bad, I don't know, but you're getting more information. Um, this is going to be the first part in a two-part series on the civil rights movement and the various aspects of that. It will not just cover uh, African Americans in part two. We'll look at other groups of people um, striving for civil rights. And this is one of the toughest units to do in large part because it's uh, it's personal to some people. It uh, People lived through it. They experienced it. There's still people alive today. As with most of the modern units here that we're doing, you know, people are primary sources. So there's a lot of pressure to get it right and to, to do it very well. And um, so I, I hope we did a good job of that and uh, we kind of cover all of our bases. I'll be honest, you, you know, in these shorts, it's impossible to dedicate the, the time necessary to all the things that we would like to. Remember, this is a, this is a broad uh, region-style review type of thing or unit review or to help 8th graders in distance learning for my class. So with that in mind, a lot of this is meant to inspire you to go look into things. You know, we'll, we'll pique your interest, we'll give you the basics, but we want you to go look at stuff. Um, and if you're an enjoy, if somebody who enjoys history, you know, this is kind of a good way to just get yourself immersed in a topic and then go do the deep research if you hear something in here that interests you. So with that in mind, I'd like to start with a question today to get our show going. And that question is, if there's a law that you know is unjust or wrong, founded on wrong principles, do you have an obligation to follow that law and to obey it? Or do you have an obligation to disobey that law? And that's a question that I think a lot of people have to grapple with in the civil rights movement and, you know, some of their strategies for bringing attention um, to, to what's happening. And this is something that I like to grapple with in history of, you know, putting myself in the shoes of somebody. What am I what am I willing to risk? What am I willing to put on the line um, for something that I believe in? Uh, myself, my family, um, what, what are the things I'm willing to risk? I'm not saying I'm willing to risk those things, but y- you can't remove the human element of history. And in the civil rights movement, you're going to see a lot of these situations where people are putting their lives on the line, the lives of their family, um, they'll have death threats, uh, people will, will come after them, people will die for rights um, like voting. You know, and that brings me to this next point, you know, what are civil rights? And this is really for the middle schoolers in particular, because it's kind of an abstract concept, but I'm kind of going to pull some of the the official um, dictionary definitions here and then I'll sort of elaborate. But civil rights, according to I think this is Britannica's definition to give you the textbook type of thing, uh, are guarantees of equal and social opportunities and equal protection under the law, regardless of race, religion, gender or other personal characteristics. To put it in example form, 
everything from voting, uh, freedom of speech, your bill of rights, um, the right to an education. This is kind of growing lately. Some people put health care in there. Um, that's, you know, things like that are up for debate, obviously. But this is a growing category you can make the case. And we have to really stretch back. And yes, we are going to focus on African-Americans quite a bit in large part because of this movement. Um, that's in the New York State curriculum, and that's what's largely tested. And also, um, you know, it's historically fascinating. And it was at the forefront of the media during the time. If you go back to the, the time period here and look at newspapers from the 50s and 60s, it's it's near that front page quite a bit. So let's take a look at this. we got to harken back to the Reconstruction era. That was our first short that we ever did in the U.S. to... Uh, podcast shorts, even with those amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th ending slavery, the 14th granting citizenship and equal protection of the laws, and the 15th granting voting rights to African-American males, from 1877, when Reconstruction ends and African-Americans have these rights on paper, you don't actually see these rights being exercised outside of the early years of Reconstruction. Um, Southern governments and governments in other states, you know, even kind of some of the Midwestern states, you could argue, put restrict, restrictions pretty quickly to clamp down on these uh, these new rights. So in large part, I want to focus on voting. And students have a hard time grasping this, but if you aren't able to vote, you're not able to elect people that can affect change in your life. So put yourself in the shoes of African Americans, right? In the year 1877, 1878, and all the way up until the 50s and 60s, the South is largely controlled by um, what we call, quote-unquote, Southern Dixiecrats or Democrats. And they're going to keep, uh, now this will change a little bit in the 50s and 60s, but they're kept from voting for Republicans through things like, or anybody for that matter, that wants to affect change in the South during the Reconstruction period. Um, again, the parties change, just so we're clear on that. But they're kept from voting on these measures because, you know, poll taxes, literacy tests, things we went over in Reconstruction, uh, pure intimidation, right? And so all these things keep African Americans from voting and they keep the control away from different groups of society in the South. Um, and that goes for poor whites too. Sometimes poor whites wanted to break break ranks on party too. And, um, you know, but you know, intimidation serves well there, I guess you could say. And we'll talk about all these things in this unit, and we kind of have. Uh, let's not forget, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson. Segregation is the law of the land. We have Jim Crow laws all throughout uh, the nation, you know, everywhere from the Midwest to the South. I mean, you, you could go probably find from the end of Reconstruction till the 60s and 70s, you could probably find some form of Jim Crow law in most states. So at different varying times and to different varying degrees as well. However, um, the, the South is the, the core area of segregation that we think of typically during this time period, uh, and it will be the focus of much of our story here as well. So we fast forward about a, almost a century later, and we're going to kind of get into the, the 1950s here and the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. If you're in eighth grade class for, uh, for me and you're using this to follow along with the notes in part one, this will take you through slides through one through four. So... Executive Order 9981 is an executive order that was issued on July 26, 1948, and this is kind of the tipping point, in my opinion, and others for kind of the, the beginning of, of real change when it comes to segregation. This is when President Harry S. Truman, following World War II, um, desegregates the Army, and it, it, the Armed Forces, excuse me, and it abolishes you know the idea on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin in the United States Armed Forces. He's the president. He has the power to do that because the, the executive branch is officially um, the head of the armed forces. It's technically a civilian head. And uh, Truman heroically does this, in my opinion. This, again, this is my opinion. Because he's in he's in the middle of a re-election campaign, and it's actually not looking good for him. 
Uh, it looks like he's probably going to lose the election to um, to Dewey, and you can that's that famous picture that you see with Truman with the newspaper. He actually does win the election, but he privately will say things like, you know, I'm going to do the right thing. If we lose the election, we lose the election. And, uh, and in my opinion, the desegregation of the military is the one thing that kind of kicks this whole thing off. And this podcast in particular, this first part, will focus on a lot of that. And the next thing we're going to come to is huge. And it we just celebrated recently the 50th anniversary um, in 2014 of this is the Brown versus Board of, or excuse me, 2015. 2014, it starts, you know, 2015, the case, the case ends on um, the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Linda Brown was a, an African-American student who had to travel pretty far for school and was denied acceptance into white schools nearby. And here's what I like to tell students. This is in Kansas. This is not, you know, Dixie, the true South, right? This is in Kansas. Now, Kansas has typically always been kind of that state ever since, you know, the idea of bleeding Kansas and sectionalism in the 1850s. Kansas was always that state that was kind of pulled, you know, between slave and free. So, you know, there is history there. But to get back to the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case, this is huge, guys. You got to know this for eighth grade reads, exams, everything. This is going to be the Supreme Court case that will desegregate schools. It is a major, major ruling. All right. The case would be argued by Thurgood Marshall, who will later become a Supreme Court uh, justice himself, the first African-American. And he argued that it was a violation of equality under the law, under the 14th Amendment. That having separate schools is inherently unequal and demonstrated the disparity. Uh, he tried to demonstrate the disparity in schools, you know, showing that, you know, white schools are better funded, had better educators, more resources than African-American schools. Demonstrating that the principle of separate but equal laid out by Plessy versus Ferguson was not being upheld and that, you know, separate schools and separate anything are inherently unequal. This was a very, very, very high-profile case, very controversial. Arguments really dragged on for over a year, and as a result of that, and they were they kind of tabled the case to hear new arguments, um, the Chief Justice dies, and this allows for Earl Warren to come in as the Chief Justice. The Warren Court, as it be called, will make so many monumental decisions during this unit, and I encourage you to go look at the Warren Court and some of the rulings. But in the new arguments, um, Marshall really focused on this idea of separate schools sending the signal of inferiority. And um, I like to, I kind of see some of this in Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail later on. But from the time that, you know, African-American children are young in these separate schools, you're basically being told you're different, you're inferior, and you kind of grow up with that. And they use a lot of scientific studies that were kind of cutting edge of the time to demonstrate that and how that these separate schools were harming education. And the court um, chose to focus on, you know, rather than the 14th Amendment, they chose to focus on fixing education and education's role in society. And the court was pretty evenly split, about 5-4 at one point, but they wanted to kind of be able to come together on this and move forward. And so they actually will, at the end of this, since they focus, the court chooses to focus on fixing education more, um, they will rule 9-0 to zero in favor of integrating schools. So Brown really sets the stage for the civil rights movement, you know, from Truman to this to that. And obviously there's other events I can put in here, but um, the Brown versus Board of Education decision is so important because it overturns the idea of of separate but equal from Plessy versus Ferguson. It sets the stage. And if this can begin to happen in schools, which is such an important part of our society, education, it can happen elsewhere. So, However, though, you kind of get, and I did a lot of more reading in preparation for the show on this, but there's a mixed message in a lot of southern areas. Um, some integrated pretty quickly. 
and others resisted. You know, there there really wasn't. I read this paper from uh, it was a master's thesis that somebody did from the University of uh, from Gettysburg, and the the author talked a lot about had really great resources. You know, the South there was never a uniformed. You know. Um, everybody's against this or everybody's for it. There was, it was so complicated. So some districts integrated quickly and some fought it, you know, completely. And let's look at one example of Brown v. Board put to the test here. Now I'm going to jump out of order actually a little bit. But when this was put to the test in 1957, Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus attempted to use the National Guard of his state to bar the entry of nine African-American students who were selected to go to Central High School in Little Rock. They were chosen to be the first students. Um, They attempted to get in, and there was actually a pretty upset mob of people there and other community members also kind of resisting. And there's the iconic image of Elizabeth Ann Eckford. Um, she, She is the one that is walking, and there's the person behind her screaming at her, and there's that famous picture. She, she was away from the other eight students, so she was kind of separate, so she was sort of left out on an island, um, and you know, the students returned home. Eisenhower has to make a decision, who sees the president this time, um, do, what, what do I do? Do I use the federal government to enforce the ruling of Brown? Do I let it go? Because in the past, I, I want to point this out, the federal government since Reconstruction was very hesitant to really step up to the plate, and you know do, do, we, um, do we really push using the federal government to enforce these new rules, or do we let the, you know, the states do it? And presidents in the past have been very reluctant to kind of step up to the plate. You know, Harry Truman desegregating the armed forces is, is one example of that, you know, somebody stepping up to the plate. Other presidents have been very reluctant to do that. So Eisenhower is going to do that. And I kind of talked about the party sort of switching, you know, um, on African the issues of African Americans. There's not so much of a switch as it is the Democratic Party, you know, so I want to kind of preface that or go back and uh, amend that comment. I don't want to focus on so much of a switch. It's more of the Democratic Party begins with the the Kennedy era and Truman to step up to the plate and address African-American issues as well. Plenty of Republicans do that as well. I mean, Eisenhower is a Republican president. So you're going to see some bipartisan stuff when it comes to the civil rights movement um, as far as political change. But you're going to see resistance as well, okay, and resistance from both sides. So it's like both sides are for civil rights stuff at this time. There's a shift in, in Democratic policy. Um, so a lot of Southern Democrats are still very much against the Strom Thurmond, George Wallace, um, people like that. And so, you know, you see factions of both parties will kind of be against civil rights change. Um, Barry Goldwater of the Republicans will vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, not based on race perspectives but based on his own beliefs so you do see people on both sides against this stuff but you see people on both sides like kennedy eisenhower truman um before this stuff so i that was kind of a long explanation but i just want to put that out there so again eisenhower's got a big decision here he's going to send the 101st airborne by the way 101st airborne is an elite unit he's not just sending like anybody down there he sends um 500 troops at first then more to escort the students to school daily to keep them safe to enforce the brown ruling this sends a direct and clear message that this is change, change is going to come, and this is what's the new deal. This is the, you know, pardon the, pardon the expression there from FDR, um, but one student talked about how school was like going to war. There was lots of harassment and violence. Um, some of the students didn't react. Some of the students did react when, when pushed too far. I mean, you can only take so much, um, but Fabus actually continues to resist this on and off. He actually closes schools for a little while at one point. And so these these students have become known as the Little Rock Nine, and it's kind of famous. 
and something to know because it's the enforcing of Brown versus Board of Education. To be honest with you, though, with schools, I mean, schools will resist integration, even though Brown was decided in 1954 and 55 and implemented. This will trickle on way down the line of, you know, integrating schools. Some will do, like I said, quickly. Some will hold off and fight it till the 1970s. So this is not something that happens drastically and quickly. So I want to backtrack now to another event that, along with Brown versus Board of Education and the Little Rock Nine and the desegregating the Armed Forces, that kind of is one of the starting gun moments of the Civil Rights Movement. And that happens on December 1st, 1955, when Rosa Parks is sitting in the segregated section of the bus, um, and she refuses to, to, to get up and move and give up her seat. I should, you know... Um, I want to dismiss the idea that she was tired and she just had enough, that kind of thing. Rosa Parks and and many other women in Montgomery, Alabama, were very politically active. There was, um, I believe, I think I wrote this down somewhere. I hope I have it correct. I thought it was um, Alabama Alabama State or Montgomery State. Uh, I did not write it down. But she was very politically active among with people from the college of, uh, you know, talk about the idea of boycotting the bus service because many women and many people reported being treated very poorly on these buses. And so the idea of a boycott, which is you refuse to use a service uh, service or a product in the hope that the person giving the service or product changes things. So Rosa Parks knew exactly what was happening, what she was doing. She's very politically active. Um, and the images, and I want to talk about this for a second, images that come out of this unit, um, pictures, you know, uh, photographs, media, news uh news video that will be streamed, not streamed, that's today, that will be shown across the country on, on nightly news will have such a profound impact. Students often ask me, why was there so much change in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s with the civil rights movement? I often say, because mass media got a handle on this, and I think Americans really were horrified and paying attention to this stuff in a way that they, you know, they, they couldn't look away anymore. Um, so... Anyways, like I was talking about, the black women of Montgomery, Alabama, they had sort of thought of this out for some time. The politically active ones involved the college nearby. If I can remember what the name of the college was, it's killing me. Um, and so the images of, of Rosa Parks with the the, um, the serial number, right, her getting fingerprinted are put across the country. And people are asked, you know, why? And so the power of images really becomes important. And we're going to keep coming back to that. I might sound like a broken record. And a lot of residents use the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama. So this was going to hurt them greatly. Um, and so they form a committee to improve, Mon- it's called the Committee to Improve Montgomery. And a young Dr. King, I think he was like 26 years old, which is astonishing that he becomes so important this time, is chosen to head this up. And this is his coming out party as well. And he's going to use the message of nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, of love, you know, turn the other cheek which is so profound. He's not the first guy to preach this kind of stuff, but he knows it's effective. He believes it's the right way. And this will be his message throughout. So the idea of, you know, civil disobedience, you will turn the other cheek. If you're met with violence, you don't repay with violence. That um, you Civil disobedience also being, you know, that idea of if a law is unjust, you intentionally disobey it because you know that law is wrong and unjust. So Montgomery bus boycott kicks off. You have walkers, carpooling, and it brings huge attention. It will last over a year into the November of into November of 1956 when the Supreme Court rules that those laws uh, segregating buses were unconstitutional. And we now have, you know, the the plan here. This nonviolent civil disobedience will work. And we will also, on the other wing, use the courts, work within the system to affect change. Okay. So just to remind you, civil disobedience is advocated. Nonviolent 
brings attention to the nation, uh, around the nation to the injustice done. The media will pick this stuff up, and that puts pressure on the federal government to take action, which is what was missing for the last 100 years in the slow change of race. So you've got this kind of formula that works really well. You know, we, we do the civil disobedience, the protests, the marches. Um, we'll get some other strategies here in a second. This will be picked up by news outlets, which are becoming very popular across the nation, and that puts pressure on the federal government in particular, not state and local as much, to affect change. And that this formula seems to work. So this is something that you definitely want to pay attention to. You wanted then some of the next stuff of civil disobedience that you can see are the Greensboro sit-ins. And um, these young, a lot of them are young college students. You have to remember, remind myself how young these people are. And um, these students will oftentimes be black and white, people of all different backgrounds. And a sit-in is designed, you know, you'll go into a restaurant and um, you will have sometimes the white, you know, the white uh, sit-in protesters sit in the black section, the black sit-in protesters sit in the white section, or together in the white section, doesn't matter, and just kindly ask to be served. And they will endure all kinds of things, um, beatings, uh, food being dumped in them. You go look at pictures of the Greensboro sit-ins. There were sit-ins in Nashville and other areas as well. Uh, the sit-ins were very, very effective at, as an example of civil disobedience and nonviolence. And the last thing we're going to kind of talk about today are something called the Freedom Rides. And this will take you to the end of page four, I believe, in your notes, eighth graders, if you're using this. The Freedom Rides were originally conceived in 1947, um, but they really didn't take off. And, and the reason that these are formed is to test the Supreme Court ruling, the idea of Freedom Rides. And then, you know, other organizations in 1961 are going to pick them up. And the organization that picks them up is called CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and they're going to revise how they do them. And these freedom rides were based on court rulings earlier that segregation was illegal in interstate commerce. So earlier, Supreme Court ruling said that um, using the interstate commerce clause, which is like any kind of business that flows over state lines, that the federal government can regulate Congress specifically in the Constitution. Supreme Court ruled that based, um, based on the fact that these buses travel over state lines, these Greyhound buses and other buses, that's interstate commerce, they cross state lines, the federal government can regulate that. You can't, regu- you can't segregate bus stations or buses that travel across state lines. The court ruled that in the 1940s. So even before Brown, they had ruled that. So in order to ensure that the southern states were complying with this, the organization Corps organized black and white riders, and again, riders of all backgrounds, to go on rides through southern states and actually use opposing facilities. So white riders would use black facilities, black riders would use uh, white facilities. I'd also like to point out that Corps is not alone in this. Another organization, SNCC, N, uh, excuse me, SNCC, or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, was a civil rights group that was involved as well during these freedom rides. So it wasn't just CORE. Uh, SNCC will, will inject a, a nice shot in the arm to pick the, uh, pick up where CORE kind of began things with them together. And the rides actually went pretty well at first. But when they hit the Deep South, this is where things kind of changed. In Anniston, Alabama, there was a white mob that uh, firebombed and beat riders in a bus. They firebombed the bus and everybody got out and then they, they subjected them to beating. The images, these images are also very famous. They make newspapers and television uh, broadcasts across the country. And uh, they all, the mob only stopped after warning shots were fired by troopers nearby. And it gained a lot of attention. People were shocked at the awfulness and brutal, uh, most brutal nature of these attacks. Something as simple as using the, you know, the quote-unquote wrong bathroom or drinking fountain. And this really put pressure who on the Kennedy administration, who in 1961 is now in, in charge. And the Kennedys really were kind of trying to walk the line here between um, supporting what they thought was right in the civil rights movement, but 
not upsetting Southern Democrats who were part of their base. And so they try to toe that line early on in the administration. And by the end of the administration, they are just all on the side of civil rights for the most part. And, um, you know, then dealing with the, the Dixiecrats, as the, the, they're called. But, you know, this is also in the height of the Cold War. I mean, I, I, don't, I like to tell students that um, history doesn't occur in a box. You can have multiple things going on at multiple times. And these images are being put around the world. And, uh, again, we'll come back to this idea of, of media and images and power of video and all that. But we're trying to make ourselves look like the good guys in an international battle of the Cold War. And, and our nation, you know, is built on the idea of freedom, equality, um, you know, the idea that all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. Yet here we are. Um, there's people in America and the government is, you know, looks like it, it makes the government look like they're allowing this to go on. And the Soviet Union is just eating this stuff up. Right. In the international battle of wits with with uh, the United States, you know, oh, the United States says they're for freedom and equality, but yet they don't even let people use the same bathrooms. So the Kennedys are very, very in the administration and other administrations that well be very uh, conscious of this idea. The other location, the Freedom Rides, uh, the Klan was involved, the Ku Klux Klan, which had been around since the 18, you know, 1860s. Uh, during Reconstruction to try to keep African Americans from accessing their rights given to them by the Bill of Rights in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Um, there's bomb threats. Uh, one location, clamors board the bus beating the riders. Um, we'll get the famous James Werg image. You can Google this, Google his name. And there's an image. He's actually a, um, he's not an African American. He's a white freedom rider, and he's got the image of the newspaper on his chest, and he endured a horrible beating and um, he, this had happened in Montgomery, Alabama. Montgomery will be the site of a lot of uh, things, you know, we talked about the bus boycott. Law enforcement, in some cases, will find uh, is either complicit in this stuff or the ones carrying it out sometimes. Um, there's a history of, the, of law enforcement in some parts of the country being involved with the, the Ku Klux Klan. Again, I'm not, I don't want to be, this is not like a political stance or anything like that. I'm just pointing out that this did happen sometimes, and it was very hard to catch the people who committed these crimes. Um, on the next podcast, I'll talk more about like, you know, how many Southerners were really this angry to go out and commit violence versus how many Southerners actually helped in the civil rights movement, you know, or other parts of the country. So we want to avoid this idea that I'm saying that all police officers just allow this stuff to go on that they, uh, you know, but it, it did happen. It did happen. So back to the freedom rides. Okay. Um, eventually the riders, will congregate in a church in Montgomery, Alabama with Dr. King, and there's a mob nearby. And Dr. King actually contacts Robert Kennedy. He was the attorney general at the time, the brother of John F. Kennedy. And they actually sent in the National Guard to kind of you know, quell this and actually protect the riders on a lot of their journeys. Um, in Jackson, Mississippi, actually, the riders are arrested and jailed. Um, a lot of them weren't bailed out. They tried to stay there. And this idea of filling up the jails, and we'll see this again in Birmingham in 1963 in the next episode, you know, overload the penal system, get them to pay attention, right? And the Freedom Riders will continue to work with the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, but the Freedom Riders get that the Kennedy administration to start to pay attention. And eventually, Kennedy will pressure the Interstate Commerce Commission to stick by their ban of desegregating facilities, and they do so. So the Freedom Riders score a big win there. And again, you know, Interstate Commerce is a federal clause in the Constitution. Congress can regulate that. And they ask the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, to stick by that desegregation rule. And the Freedom Riders score a big kind of win there early on in the 1960s with the Kennedy administration. And really, you know, the Freedom Riots, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, the Little Rock Nine, all of this demonstrates that civil disobedience, nonviolence, and using the, you know, um, these strategies and these images being cast around United States media outlets and around world outlets 
will pressure the government to do something about these injustices that are going on and this violence that's going on. So that's it for the first short. Um, make sure you guys tune in next week to uh, the Civil Rights Movement Part 2. We'll get into a lot more there. I think that episode might actually be a little bit longer um, than this one, but I kept it under 30 minutes. I'm very proud of myself, and I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And again, if you have any questions, you know, tweet at us at uh, History Holly. Email us, hollyhistory65 at gmail.com. Uh, get in touch with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, we hope you listen to more. Thank you.